And now, The Mentors, one of the most popular and unique shows on the radio today. Each week, one of our four remarkable CEOs, including Tom Lord, John Phillips, and Rick Brutico, will challenge your thinking about life and work. Sought after for their success and for consistently putting people first, treating employees and customers with respect, and helping others succeed, now these same CEOs, the mentors, want to help you achieve your highest level of profitability, success, and personal fulfillment in life, at work, and in business. Now, here's your mentor. Welcome back to the Mentors Radio. I am Tom Laurie, and I will be joined today by Agritech entrepreneur Jory Feidelson. Remember, you can hear us on the Salem Radio Network in California and Texas and online at thementorsradio.com or on any podcast platform, Apple, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify. Did you know that agriculture has gone tech? And it's creating a whole host of new and exciting career opportunities as it works to improve the global food system through transformation. Today, we have a very special guest, Dr. Jerry Feidelson, who is solving the problem of food waste at Agribody Technologies based in San Diego, which he founded and leads as CEO. He will be sharing with us today his journey from the classroom to, the, to becoming an agritech entrepreneur and what agritech is doing to improve the, the food supply worldwide. So, Jerry, welcome, and let's begin with Agribody and how you're applying science to solve the problem of food waste. How big a problem is food waste? Well, thanks, Tom. I really appreciate the invitation to address your listeners. Um, so... Food waste is an enormous issue. Um, first of all, agriculture is um, arguably the largest industry in the world. It's the one that nobody can do without. We all eat. And uh, just as uh, kind of an introduction, I'd like to point out that our first president, George Washington, said about 213 years ago that agriculture is the most healthful, most useful, and most noble employment of man. Well, that was two centuries ago. I think now we can probably add and women. Um, and so our first president certainly had a good perspective on agriculture. Um, there are dozens and dozens of different aspects of agriculture that are really important. And what we're focusing on now at Agribody um, is food waste. We actually waste about one-third of all the food that's produced in the world, about 1.3 billion tons a year. Um, that's enough food to feed 2 billion people. We have a little over 800 million people that go to sleep hungry every night. And so with all the growth in the population and the reduction in land available for agriculture, compounded by global climate change and unpredictable and terrible weather, um, and also the rise of the middle class where more people are eating meat, um, and that puts even more pressure on the agricultural system, um, there's uh, enormous opportunities to increase yields, to increase the tolerance of crops to um, stress, and finally to make them last longer during and after harvest. So we're a small company based in San Diego. We're about four years old, and we're trying using genetics to work on all of those problems. Um, but to address your question, um, yeah, food waste is huge. That's the major focus of our efforts. And um, we think we can make, a, with appropriate funding and support, we think we can make a pretty big impact on that. 
So most of us, when we think about wasted food, we think about the food that we toss out and uh, is wasted. Uh, I know that's not the only place. And in the United States, I believe, compared to sub-Africa, subcontinent Africa, uh, the U.S., 39% of it is lost in consumption, where in Africa, it's about 4%. So there's a lot of other steps. What are all those steps where we're losing, uh, where we're wasting food? Well, when you think about food production, distribution, and eating, it's really, you can really divide it into five major steps. The, the first one, the earliest, of course, is on the farm. That's agriculture. And when crops are grown and not sold, or they, they're grown and the fruit or vegetables are not attractive and the farmers can't sell it, then that's called food loss. And again, that varies, but generally it's about a third uh, worldwide. About a third of the food that's produced on the farm never makes it off the farm. And if you're going to waste food, frankly, that's the best place to lose it because then you just plow it into the ground, it becomes fertilizer. It's still a tremendous waste and loss, but at least it doesn't involve all the downstream losses that are compounded. So the second step is post-harvest, and that's basically logistics, transporting the food from where it's made to where it's sold. Um, and then there's processing in many cases where you process the food. Um, then finally, the, then the fourth step is retail. That's in stores. That tends to be about 10 to 20% of loss. Um, um, and, and, there, and then, as you said, there's consumption, which is in the, in the end user. So we make so much food and throw so much away. Um, it's quite different in very poor countries where they, they don't have the luxury of throwing food away, but still a great deal is lost before it ever reaches the end consumer. And there's a lot of oh, costs or losses when we waste food, at, or some of them are clear. But why don't you tell us about what happens when we waste food, the various uh, impacts it has with regards to us uh, both in purchasing as well as the environment. Right, right. Well, it's, I told you that there was about 1.3 billion tons of food, but what does that mean at the retail level? It, it, it equates to about a trillion dollars. The entire agriculture industry is about $3 trillion. Um, and, and then the indirect costs that I just mentioned, um, and that includes things like eroded land, uh, greenhouse gas emissions, clearing of forests, um, think about the Amazon, uh, increase in food prices, uh, wasting water, wasting pesticides, herbicides, uh, loss of wetlands, loss of biodiversity, and climate change. Those are all secondary effects. That amounts to estimated about $700 billion dollars. So we lose about a trillion direct and about $700 billion indirectly. That's why this is such an enormous problem and one that we really have to work on. It's easier, one would think, you know, the old expression, a penny saved is a pound earned. If we could save um, a lot of the food from being wasted, then we don't have to grow that much more with all the secondary uh, effects and resource uses. Now, what's happening is... Uh Science is coming into play. Tell us what AgriBodies, what, what the focus of AgriBody is and what you're doing and uh, the success you've had to date. And we'll probably go into the next segment because I think we got about a minute, minute, minute and a half left in this block. But why don't we get started on the story of AgriBodies and what it is that you're doing uh, to minimize waste of food. Right. So um, when you think about ways to avoid 
ways to avoid waste, it sort of falls into physics and chemistry. So things like gases, uh, reducing oxygen, increasing nitrogen. Um, temperature, of course, you can chill fruits and vegetables after harvest. And then the third general approach is coating the food with edible waxes or other coatings. What Agrobody does is to those three traditional methods, we add genetics. That is, we build it into the seed itself. We essentially make a mutation in a critical gene. I'll talk about this more later. But by making a specific mutation, we can extend the shelf life of fruits, vegetables, and flowers two to threefold without making any other changes to the quality of the products. Well, when we come back, we're going to continue our discussion with Dr. Jerry Feidelson, who's the CEO of Cutting Edge Company in Agriculture, Agrobody Technology, and we're going to talk about extending the life of a tomato. Remember, you can take The Mentors Radio with you anywhere by subscribing to our podcast at thementorsradio.com. This is Tom Laurie, and this is The Mentors Radio Show. And now, back to The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. Welcome back. This is Tom Laurie, and today we have agrobiotech pioneer, Dr. Jerry Feidelson. We're talking about opportunities in the world of agriculture and what his company, Agribodies, is doing to reduce food waste with cutting-edge technology. Remember, you can listen to us on the radio via podcast on iTunes, TuneIn, Spotify, Google, and more, any device at any time. So, Jerry, you're telling us about Agribody, the company that you founded and serve as CEO, and you're doing something, I, I know, with a couple of things, but let's talk about the tomato and what you're doing and what the uh, what the success has been to date. Right. So when you look at the market um, for seeds, and our customers, to be clear, are seed companies. Um, seed companies serve farmers, and then farmers serve the public. Um, it's pretty important that uh, to understand that seed companies and farmers are generally interested in what are called input traits, things like higher yield and tolerance to drought and high temperature and low nutrients. And we certainly have we can deliver improved traits in those areas to farmers. But the public, I think, in general, doesn't have a very clear understanding of input traits. They're much more interested in out, what are called output traits, things like better health in products or longer shelf life, or they look better, or they smell better, or they taste better, or they have less gluten, or they have higher nutrients, things like that. So output traits is what we're focusing on now. And looking at the market in vegetable seeds in particular, um, the big save is really tomatoes. About one fourth, about 40, sorry, 40 percent of the 11 billion dollar global vegetable seed market is in the um, solanaceous family, also known as nightshade. That includes eggplant, pepper, and tomato. And of that 40 percent, almost uh, 70 percent of it is in tomato seeds. So tomato seeds are kind of the big kahuna of the vegetable seed market. We think the uh, serviceable available market uh, for these vegetable seeds is about a billion dollars. So if we can show a longer shelf life, significantly longer shelf life in tomato, then we plan after that to then move after five or six other vegetables and fruits. In the meantime, we'd like to license our technology in the big crops, the big row crops. But I'd, I'd like to focus now mainly on the vegetables. So the cool thing about tomatoes um, is that there isn't really a good solution 
to keeping them lasting a long time except to stick them in your refrigerator. And, and when you do that, their flavor goes down dramatically. And so the best tomatoes uh, for fresh market is when they're ripened, ripened on the vine, often in greenhouses, sometimes in the field, and then they're shipped and very quickly have to be sold and eaten. I mean, you know, you know I know, and everybody knows that a fresh market tomato doesn't last long on, on, on the, in the pantry. And when you put it in the fridge, as I said, it, it, its quality goes down. So we would like to help the farmer by allowing them to synchronize the crop and pick all these tomatoes right on the vine quicker and more, uh, more uniformly and then uh, make it through the distribution system to your plate. Um, and so that's essentially what we want to do, and we do that by, as I said, making um, uh, knocking down a gene that causes perishable crops to quickly decay. We do this once for each variety, and there's no need for continued treatments. So that's, that's the unique approach of AgriBody over other uh, companies that are addressing a problem but in different ways. Now, there are lots of different kinds of tomatoes, and they've evolved with time. Tell us about the uh, evolution of uh, agriculture and over, over time, and what else? What other things have led up to this point in time? Oh, in the larger sense, yeah. Well, I guess that really, you're asking really Tom, about the history of plant breeding, not, not restricted to tomatoes, yeah. but in the major row crops and, and uh, vegetable crops and uh, forage crops, uh, there are many, many different types of crops, horticulture, flowers. It started about probably 12,000 years ago when humans began domesticating plants and flowers. They did it by selection and screening, and they picked the plant that looked the best, and they took the seeds from that plant and replanted them and did this over generations and generations. And it pretty much that was agricultural development for uh, probably six to 8,000 years and then uh, Mendel, in 1865, discovered the laws of modern genetics. Um, and, and, uh, and that led, um, uh, almost 90 years later, to the discovery of the structure of DNA in 1953 by Watson and Crick. So we actually knew what genes were. We knew how they replicated, how they recombined, how they repaired, repaired themselves. So with the structure of DNA, there was a giant step forward. Then some of your listeners may have heard of Norman Borlaug, who, um, got, who was the first plant breeder to win a Nobel Prize. He um, essentially invented the green revolution, the first green revolution, by increasing yields of wheat and rice by 70%. It, he probably saved, it's estimated, close to 1 billion lives just by his innovations in plant breeding using, using um, hybrid crops, using lots of fertilizer, and um, and also um, uh, using um, a shorter shorter stature plants so they didn't get blown over by the wind. Um, the first genetically engineered crop was tobacco in 1986, and and a few years later led to the first um, um, licensed um, uh, GMO or transgenic crop, which happened to be a long shelf life tomato. Ironically, it was a flavor saver tomato by Calgene. Um, that unfortunately was put in a not very um, commercially attractive line, so it didn't go anywhere. Um, but then in the 2000s, uh, scientists came up with marker-assisted breeding, which basically means you can use DNA markers to, to track different traits. And when you're doing crosses and you're using mutational breeding, you can very quickly find the desired uh, plants. And then genetic selection uh, about 10 years ago uh, let, let scientists do genome-wide genome molecular markers um, because the cost of sequencing has gone down so much. 
And then finally, about six years ago, uh, the advent of uh, CRISPR-based genome editing, where we could make a specific mutation in one specific gene, essentially in almost any crop. Um, people understand that in medical research, trying to treat things like uh, sickle cell anemia or cancer, but those techniques are equally applicable in agriculture. And so the reason I started AgriBody, and maybe I'm getting ahead of our topic a little bit, is because I saw that CRISPR-based genome editing could make a huge impact on, on this particular problem of extending the shelf life by making a mutation instead of doing it transgenically. You're listening to The Mentors Radio. Today we're talking to agribiotech pioneer, Dr. Jerry Feidelstein. So so we've got uh, the evolution. And there, along the way, though, uh, regulation and customer or consumer acceptance has been an issue, hasn't it? Well, I think everybody can appreciate improvements in crops, uh, lowering the prices, keeping it stable, uh, contributing to food security, spending such a tiny part of our income on food, at least in the developed world, it's unprecedented. Um, but yes, uh, uh, I was involved in the first generation of transgenic crops by, uh, at Mycogen, um, where we discovered probably about uh, two-thirds of the what are called BT toxin genes. These are bacterial proteins that were put into plants that made them tolerant or resistant to insect pests and many other kinds of pests. And we thought we were the white knights saving the world from millions of tons of synthetic chemical pesticides, which had clear environmental, um, serious environmental problems. But instead, it got into the whole so-called GMO controversy. So one thing I want to make clear to your listeners is that every, every plant that we eat, every crop that we eat is genetically modified through selection, through screening, through mutations. The red grapefruits that, that you buy um, were results of X-ray mutations. Um, and so all crops are transgen- all crops are genetically modified. It's just the idea of putting in foreign genes that wouldn't normally be able to cross through normal sexual processes in plants is what got people's um, anxiety high. And that was stroked by a lot of um, NGOs and the organic food industry. Um, you know, things, certain things sell well, sex and fear. And in the case of GMOs, uh, fear worked extremely well. So I've been kind of fighting that battle for over 30 years. And we're going to come. We're going to come right back and continue this discussion. We're with uh, guest mentor, agrobiotech scientist and entrepreneur Jerry Feidelson. Remember, you too can also listen to us online, any device, anytime at thementorsradio.com, or on any podcast platform: Apple, Google Play, Stitcher. Tune in, Spotify. This is Tom Lorry, and this is the Mentors Radio Show. And now. Back to the Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. Welcome back. This is Tom Lloyd. Today we have agrobiotech pioneer Dr. Jerry Feidelson, and we're talking about opportunities in agriculture and what his company is doing to reduce food waste with cutting-edge technology. When they last time we were talking a little bit about the regs and GMOs and all of that, and I'm uh, uh, I, I am partial to what we're doing in the agricultural world in terms of feeding the world. Uh, and you made a point when we talked uh, in prepping for the this show about the, what's changed in terms of an agricultural economy to uh, an industrial economy. How many, how few people are really involved in agriculture, and um, their actual experience and knowledge of it, which creates uh, some vulnerabilities, doesn't it? Yes. 
I think when George Washington made that quote that I did at the very beginning of this interview, um, something like 70, more than 70% of the U.S. population were farmers. I mean, it, we're only, it was a farm agricultural economy. Now, fast forward now, 250 years later or so, and, and 2% of the population are on the farm, uh, feeding the other 98% of us. That, that's a remarkable shift in just, just two centuries. And an unfortunate consequence of that is that the great majority of our population today knows very little about agriculture. Um, very few of us have been on farms. I grew up in New York City, and I couldn't tell a cow from a cauliflower until I was about 12 years old. Um, and, and so when people don't know how agriculture works, um, they are subject to misinformation. Let's put it that way. Um, however, people who grow up on farms know how important it is to farmers to preserve the soil, to preserve the land for their children and their grandchildren. And, and so there's a disconnect. And, and the, that's the, one of the unfortunate consequences of, the, of not having direct experience on the farm is that uh, people don't know how crops are bred or how they're distributed or what, what the pros and cons are. Um, our position, I, I think, is pretty clear. We, we want food to be healthy. We want it to be nutritious. We want it to be plentiful. We want it to last a long time. Um, and I think most people in the population will, will share, share those objectives. And so it really boils down to how do we do that. And I totally get it that people are kind of freaked out about putting a fish gene into tomatoes to make it do this or that. And, and I respect that attitude. Uh, not, not that there's necessarily a strong technical basis for it, but there is something kind of unusual that it wouldn't happen naturally. Um, I just want to add one sidebar to that. Just because it's natural doesn't mean it's good or healthy. You know, bubonic plague, diphtheria, AIDS, those are natural. They're not good. And, uh, conversely, synthetic things, things that come out of labs, are sometimes really healthy and essential. I would say vaccines and other uh, parts of medical health are very artificial. We use GMO insulin and inject them into diabetic veins, and nobody has a problem with that. But if you eat a transgenic uh, um, soybean, then people are concerned about it. So there's a little bit of a logical disconnect. But, but um, from the values-based point of view, I, I understand it completely. And that's why when I started Agribody, I decided it would be silly to try to do to extend shelf life or increase yields or um, make plants more tolerant to stress by using transgenic methods because it, the regulations are very strict. Um, it takes uh, probably somewhere between 20 and $100 million to get a product on the market, so only the biggest ag chemical companies can afford to do it in the biggest crops. And I'm interested in bringing this technology to uh, the public in, in lots of small market vegetables where it really can make a difference in quality of life. Um, and so when genome editing came around, particularly CRISPR, I thought, look, my co-founder, John Thompson, who's a professor of, um, he's, the, he's the head of R&D um, at Waterloo University um, at, in Canada, just a little bit west of Toronto, he did all of these experiments by taking uh, one particular gene, flipping it around in the same plant, making less of a particular critical protein, and he got these three traits using what's called anti-sense methods. Um, I saw that I could probably do the same thing by just making a mutation in that gene. So in other words, John made less of a normal protein and got these three really cool traits, and I thought we could make the normal amount of a messed up protein and basically accomplish the same goal. 
And so that's what we set out to prove, and we've now, we've now done that. We've used genome editing to make a specific mutation in this one critical regulatory gene that determines whether the plant cell grows and divides or not, uh, as opposed to using transgenic methods. So we believe that when we're ready to commercialize this, that the pathway, the regulatory pathway, will be relatively straightforward because we're not adding any foreign DNA at all. We're simply making a mutation in what's there. And the final product is absolutely indistinguishable from a mutation that could happen naturally or created by x-rays or chemicals, which are pretty much completely unregulated beyond the normal safety things that are done for any new crop. So I just want to assure your listeners that um, this is not unregulated. Um, genome editing by simply making a mutation or a small deletion in one gene and you know exactly what you've done, you can sequence it and determine exactly what's there, that it has, it's lightly regulated. The government still, particularly the USDA, still requires data and like any crop, um, you have to go through field trials, you have to show nutritional equivalency or improvement, so it, nobody gets a free pass. Everybody is regulated and pretty heavily regulated in certain areas in the food industry. Now, this is Tom Laurie. You're listening to the Mentors Radio. Today, we have agri-biotech pioneer, Dr. Jeff, Jerry Feidelson. So, I mean, as you're talking about this exploding area of bringing science and technology into the agriculture arena, it appears that there's going to be a lot of jobs created. This looks like a very exciting area to play in. Uh, and it involves, as you said, people on the regulatory side, science, uh, farmers, whatever. Tell us how you found your way into this business. Right. Well, it was, as I mentioned, I grew up in New York City, so I did not grow up on a farm. Um, but I really developed um, an abiding love of agricultural biotechnology and the impact for agriculture when I was heading the molecular biology department at a company in San Diego called Mycogen. And as I mentioned, when, when I was at Mycogen for 10 years, we, uh, we cloned and sequenced and patented and expressed a whole bunch of these bacterial genes that produced insect protective proteins as opposed to using synthetic chemical pesticides. Um, and I visited farms. Uh, we had joint exchange programs. Um, so anyway, my journey began in New York. Um, I went to MIT and studied computer science and um, psychology and biology, and then I went to Stanford and got a PhD in genetics. Um, had many mentors along the way um, in England as a postdoc um, at Lincogen, Jerry Calder, the, the, um, uh, the CEO for many years, was uh, my business mentor. Um, and even since then, even now at Agribody, I have uh, an investor, for example, who's really um, become a mentor for me. So I would say I got here through somewhat of a circumstantial, circuitous route, um, but I'm very passionate about what I do. So I was joking with you, Tom, earlier that sometimes a convert to a religion is more zealous than someone born into it. And uh, I wasn't born into Ag, but I certainly converted into it. Well, when we come back, we're going to talk some more about your path and opportunities and uh, the agri-tech industry. Uh, so we'll be right back with our guest mentor, agribiotech entrepreneur Jerry Feidelson. Remember, you can hear us on the Salem Radio Network in California and Texas and online anytime at thementorsradio.com or on any podcast platform, Apple, Google Play, Stitchers, TuneIn, Spotify. 
This is Tom Laurie, and this is the Mentors Radio Show. And now, back to the Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. Welcome back. This is Tom Laurie, and today we have agri-biotech pioneer Jerry Feidelson. We're talking about opportunities in agriculture and what his company is doing to reduce food waste with cutting-edge technology. In the last uh, segment, you were talking about your own path, and you mentioned uh, a couple of mentors. Uh, more specifically, I mean, they're mentors, but you had a business mentor. It sounds like you had a science mentor. Pick a, a couple of these and share with us, number one, what they really taught you and share with us how they mentored you, how they uh, brought the best out of you in these areas. Sure. Well, I would say the first was Salvador Loria, um, a Nobel Prize winner at MIT, and he's the one who gave a lecture in molecular biology when I was sort of focused more on a computer science path. And I just was so impressed with the intellectual edifice, how each scientist put a brick in this incredibly beautiful wall and built our current knowledge of how cells function at the molecular level. So um, I didn't have a tremendous amount of personal interaction with Dr. Luria, but he convinced me um, to take life science much more seriously. And then I, I, I took a lab course from one of his um, students, a, a professor, and we purified DNA uh, from calf thymus. We just went to the local supermarket, bought a hunk of tissue, um, put it through a very simple cookbook uh, set of uh, steps and ended up with pure DNA in a solution. And then I took a glass rod and spooled it and out came this pure kind of snotty clear material that was DNA. And that was my epiphany. I was sort of set on a path at that moment. The angels were singing and I saw light and so forth. And that was it. That, that put me on the path to biology. So I, I kind of gave up computers and psychology and I focused on molecular genetics. Then when I got to Stanford, I, I had the incredible good luck to work with Joshua Letterberg, who I think by far is the smartest person I ever met. Um, Josh got a, uh, his Nobel Prize when he was 32 years old for work he did when he was 24. He discovered sex and bacteria when scientists thought bacteria were too simple to even have genes. Um, and um, working side by side with him when he was in the lab was just an awesome experience. Um, so he helped me think more critically about science and, and put it in the social context. Uh, I did an experiment that was communicated by Josh to the head of the NIH when I was about 23 years old, um, which uh, transferred genes from, uh, from Staphylococcus aureus, a gram-positive pathogen, to E. coli. I'm sorry, to Bacillus, a gram-positive. Yeah, so I transferred genes between two organisms in the lab. This was not for any practical purpose, but just to show that plasmids and these little circular chromosomes could transfer. And, uh, and that letter was sent to the NIH. It was a, a pretty big impact, I think. Um, then I went to England and worked with David Hopwood, who at one time was the youngest professor in England. And I cloned the first gene involved in antibiotic production with a known biochemical role. And, and um, David was also incredibly brilliant and, and helped, uh, helped me understand some of the um, uh, how important antibiotic production was and how elegant the biosynthetic pathways were and how genetics can play an important role in that. And then I got the job at Mycogen and worked with Calder and many other really, really bright people. 
Um, and, and each one kind of added an edifice. After Mycogen, I ended up working at, at Beck & Coulter for about five years as a global product manager. So there was a very strong technical bent, but it was in analytical chemistry, which I knew basically nothing about, but had to learn pretty quickly. And that taught me a lot of the skills that turned out to be very useful in, in my current role. So for those of your listeners, I guess the bottom line is that uh, it's good to have a strong technical basis in whatever you're doing, and then you could learn the business. It's kind of an old saw, and maybe I'll get some pushback from this, but I think it's easier to, con- to convert a scientist to a business person than to make a business person a scientist, although I know many counterexamples where people with MBAs have gone on to do really great things, man- even managing, even being CEOs of, of, of biotech companies. Um, so I don't mean to overgeneralize, but but each, what, each what, mentor that I've, I've been lucky to have really added some critical skills that, if not immediately, later on in my career became very helpful. And I think the important lesson there, regardless of what you're doing, all these different people that you encounter along the way can give you some uh information and insights that uh, add up over time, over the course of a career. What's the best advice you ever received? Oh, that's a good one. I would say um, the most important skill to have uh, is networking. I've given talks to um, guidance counselors for community colleges. Uh, actually, Gary Calder was a, a co-panelist on one of those sessions. And my advice, it was entitled something like, From the Bench to the Desk. And and the theme was, how can scientists um, be trained, uh, what skills do they need to, to, to uh, become um, good managers or get into business if they want to. And so that was my advice, network, network, and network. If you're in the lab and you're doing uh, very technical things, try to get your boss to let you get to conferences and present a poster or give a talk. That's where the headhunters are looking and where you can get your next job and just keep doing that. So the ability to interact with people Effectively, it, it, you can't you can't overemphasize the importance of that. Even the smartest people in the world can do, do very little by themselves. Everything is done through teams. Uh, that's one of the drawbacks, I think, of, of graduate education. When I was going through it, you know, you had a problem to solve, you wrote a thesis, and you got out. Um, but much more, much very important along that path is to work with other people and collaborate effectively. So, learning social skills. Um, is is infinitely important. Um, in addition to honing your your keeping your knife sharp and and keeping your technical skills very good, but I would say that's sort of the best advice I got is to network, network appropriately, and um, and I tried to pass that on. Great, and uh, this is uh, Tom Laurie. You're listening to Mentors Radio. We're with Dr. Jerry Feidelson today. Uh, Agritech, agribiotech is a sub-segment of agritech. Uh, Maybe very quickly talk about what's really going on across the board, both in science and you've talked about science, technology is playing a role, and the number of uh, career opportunities you see in the future in this field. Yeah, it's really enormous. We talked about the uh, migration from 70% to 2%. I'd like to see that 2% go up a lot and uh, contribute to the efficiency and effectiveness of farming. I mean, I can't, like I said, I can't think of a more important challenge, a bigger challenge 
than to stabilize um, our food supply under conditions where it's under such incredible stress from in so many different directions. I mentioned those those pressures of population and climate change and land and so forth. Um, so it's kind of hard to summarize in just a, a minute or two opportunities, um, but you can think about it, I guess, in two general categories. There's agri-tech, which tends to be more big data, smart sensors, drones, um, software systems that can help farmers, um, uh, logistics, uh, looking for food, um, wa- not food waste, but um, when food is uh, unsafe, food safety issues. Um, there's a lot. There are lots and lots of jobs there. Um, and then in my particular area in genetics, um, there it's a tremendous growth opportunity. I'm not doing much hiring now, so please don't send your CVs here at the moment. But until we get more funding, but um, but people who are into genetics um, or biochemistry or molecular biology, certainly there are lots of places to um, apply your knowledge or to or get improved knowledge. Some of the best universities would include um, UC Davis and Cornell. Um, there are North Carolina State, um, Washington University in St. Louis. Uh, there are lots of really good departments um, that that can train students in ag and ag tech and ag biotech. So I'd encourage you to certainly, if you're a student looking for a place to go, uh, just check out the best universities with the best programs. Um, There's also more applied things with agronomy, which is really, really important to understand how to do field trials, uh, how to analyze the data. Statistics, of course, is very important. So I think people now are understanding that these are not silos uh, like in the old days when you studied physics or chemistry or biology, now there's all kinds of interactions. Um, even in genetics, there's bioinformatics, which is very very software, hardware influenced, uh, looking at gene sequences or whole genomic sequences. That's a super, super hot area right now. If we're going to have to. Bioinformatics, yeah. You can do anything. <laughs> yep. Well, we're going to have to go to break, and we're going to be right back with uh, Dr. Jerry Feidelson, who is a pioneer in the agrobiotech area. This is Tom Laurie, and this is the Mentors Radio Show. And now, back to the Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. Welcome back. This is Tom Laurie, and today we have agribiotech pioneer Dr. Jerry Feidelson. We're talking about opportunities in agriculture and what his company is doing to reduce food waste with cutting-edge technology. So when you think about your life and what you're doing, and uh, what is it where, what is it that you found to be true about happiness and those who achieve happiness in life? I guess I would say doing what you love and loving what you do. Um, it's good to be passionate, really important to be passionate about what you're doing, but it's also important to be very competent at it. So I would say at very high level, um, find something that you really like doing. Um, I'm, I'm fortunate to get paid to do what I want. I don't get paid a lot, but um, yeah, if you have a job where you do it for free, um, that's probably a pretty good job. What has uh, surprised you the most about your own journey? Well, I guess it's being um, being ready for 
forks in the road. You know, I, I think there are probably half a dozen, we don't have time now to go into them, but I've probably got half a dozen points where I had to make a choice, which graduate school to go to, which major to take, where to go to, where, where, what kind of job to, to take, and, and being ready for new opportunities. So I think it's just being receptive to opportunities, and in many cases where both paths seem equally interesting, I just went with my gut. And it seems to have worked out pretty well. And uh, what is it, uh, what would it be like to work for you? <laughs> That's an interesting question. I'm not, I'm not the right person to ask. Um, <laughs> I, I've had some good bosses and some pretty bad bosses in my career, and I learned more from the bad bosses, actually. What not to do is almost more important than what you should do. Uh, I think it's boils down to what you said at the very beginning of the session, uh, and that is to respect everybody. Um, it, it goes with employees, with sideways, laterally, upwards, downwards. Um, I think you can tell how somebody is likely to be effective by you know, seeing how they treat white people in a restaurant um, or, or service people at Elboy at a hotel. You know, I, I try to be respectful to everybody I need. Same thing looking for money. I'm, I'm trying to raise uh, $2 million right now to get to the next inflection point. And a lot of times I get referrals so that look like it's a total waste of time, but I never treat it that way. And everybody I meet, I consider a potential funder or supporter or a referral source to somebody else that might be interested in supporting us. And I, I think that's likely to pay off. The jury's still out, but uh, that, that's my attitude is just treat everybody, treat everybody with respect and good things will happen. And we have 30 seconds left. Does anything hold you back? Um, yeah, I kind of alluded to that. Uh, our, our rate limiting step is fundraising at this point. Um, it's hard to do things without money. Everybody's uh, selling something, ideas or products or services. And uh, we're trying to convince uh, investors to uh, trust us with their money. And we treat that very seriously. We've raised a million and a half dollars so far. We're looking for another two now. And we have a very clear path forward. So uh, that's the biggest uh, issue now is is raising funding to deliver what I've just talked about for 45 minutes. Well, that's great. Really, thank you very much for investing your time with us today, Dr. Jerry Feidelson, CEO of Agribodies out of San Diego. You can learn more about this and other shows by going to our website, thementorsradio.com. When you're there, make sure you subscribe to future shows so you can make it easy on yourself to hear those shows. You can also listen to us online, any device, anytime. Uh, podcast, Apple, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify. Join us next week at the same time for the next edition of The Mentors Radio. Until then, this is Tom Laurie signing off for today. Remember to be all that you can be and keep the candle lit for all who struggle in the darkness. It's been The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. To get more information about the program or a sponsor, to download a podcast of today's show, or to leave a question for our host, go to TheMentorsRadio.com. That's www.TheMentorsRadio.com. The preceding program, copyright CBJ, LLC. All rights reserved.